The Fantasy Animation Podcast is brought to you by the Fantasy Animation Research Network. If you like what you hear and want to get involved in the conversations, there are many ways that you can do so. You can visit our website, fantasy-animation.org, where you'll see a kind of archive of blog posts, uh, podcasts, uh, and you can join our mailing list. You can follow us on Twitter at fananimresearch, uh, or you can search for us on Facebook, the Fantasy Animation Research Network. We'd love to hear from you. But for now, enjoy the show. Seasonal greetings to all. I hope you're all um, wrapped up in holiday spirit, as I think they say around the globe. Uh, I hope your fantasy chestnuts are roasting on an animated fire. Welcome to the Fantasy Animation Podcast during this festive time of the year. How Christmassy are you feeling, Chris? Well, given that it's the first week of October, I'm feeling pretty Christmassy. Yeah, um, disclaimer alert, um, we're aware this will be going out at the Christmas period, and we've and we've thought about that, actually, because um, the movie we're doing this week has a, a seasonal flair, shall we say? Yes. Um, but uh, we are recording this in October. Uh, during sort of balmy, that balmy autumn period. Yeah. Muggy, it's close. Yeah. It's very close at the moment. Um, um, and yeah. we're not yet annoyed by all the Christmas decorations and things like that. Though having said that, and given the fact that it is at the beginning of October, there are still Christmas. Like in many ways it is still festive because I have seen Christmas bits and bobs around the high street. So in, it is in that way that Christmas is really three months of our lives. <laughs> Um, this is still a seasonal special. I guess in many ways it's very appropriate because uh, if, for the podcast in terms of uh, Christmas specials, if, if we're going to dare call this our Christmas special, is that, I don't know about you, but I can remember growing up watching American cartoons and because they'd be recycled on English television, um, very often the Christmas specials would just be shown at random points yes. in the year. We wouldn't get it. So the Rugrats Christmas special, I'd always be watching sort of during the summer holidays and things yeah. like that. Yeah. So this is very much in line with that kind of uh, fantasy and lineage absolutely so when you listen you know you might be listening as you say with with your proverbial chestnuts roasting on an open fire um but we are speaking to you from From the the, past from the past (laughs) we are the ghosts of christmas past or october's past we are we We haven't even done halloween yet no um (laughs) oh goodness don't reveal our process Yeah, yeah 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 Um, right, so uh, we haven't announced the film we're doing this week. This week, of course, as you've heard from our opening titles and from the podcast title, uh, we are studying uh, the classic, but I always say classic, yeah. I'm going to stop saying classic, that's going in the, um, in the penalty box, uh, the wonderful, cherished, uh, Disney-celebrated fantasy musical Mary Poppins, which um, hope in the next few weeks will be treated to the sequel Mary Poppins Returns and, and um, I'll be I'll certainly be running to the cinema to see it because I'm very interested on in how that will turn up uh, lots of things to talk about in terms of the film's status in film history in terms of uh, the way in which it plays with its source uh, material by P.L. Travers um, 
Chris, where are you coming at the film from this week? Well, I'm coming um, to the film uh, from, as I said, the first week of October. <laughs> um, no, I'm coming from the film when I when when I sort of communicated to friends, family that we were we were thinking of doing Mary Poppins. I think the the universal response was positive that this was one we should be doing, and that 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 in and of itself is interesting. Mm-hmm. That this is one that we should we should be doing. We should be thinking about if we're going to think about fantasy and animation, we should be thinking about this this film. The film, of course, is ostensibly live action but it's a live action animation hybrid so and there are clearly demarcated clips or moments of animation uh, particularly where uh, Mary but jump into a, um, a painting and so, uh, a drawing and suddenly we're in, we're in the animation um, so I'm interested in animation as a sort of fa- um, a mode of fantasy escape or, or sort of fantastic insert if you like uh, and then there are other things as well the style of the film the sort of interesting hybridized nature of the, the the style of the film so it's uh in my mind and we've debated this actually off air um uh, the relationship between the 1940s 50s aesthetic on the one hand and then a 60s uh style that is rooted in the production of of uh, Disney animation at the time, 50s and 60s, which is uh, Xeroxing, so kind of Xerox photography. Uh, the film itself is early, Mary Poppins is early 60s, and it comes off of the back of both Sleeping Beauty and 101 Dalmatians. So it's a, it's a Disney movie, and it's been in, kind of included in, in uh, Disney home video releases and, and so forth. Uh, and also the role of some of the animators. So a lot of the animators who worked on uh, Mary Poppins also worked on Disney in the 30s, 40s, were part of the sort of Disney staple of, of a group, a core group of, of Disney animators known as the, the Nine Old Men. So, yeah, and it seems like having recently watched the, the trailer for Mary Poppins Returns, it seems like animation still plays an important role in the sequel as well. So that that's it. I would be interested to see how the animation in the new new version looks in comparison to the old. So, yeah, a bit on style, a bit on the fact that live action and animation hi- hybrid, and, and that's often... often um, how oft the relationship between fantasy and animation plays out that fantasy uses animation so that's, that, that is very much in the wheelhouse um, and also a bit of stop motion there's bits of stop motion in the film so lots of stuff to talk about from an animation perspective mm. as it's well. an interesting one for Disney history this, isn't it because it's sort of it's the one live action Disney movie that has sort of infiltrated the canon yeah. certainly the contemporary canon of Disney so you'll, if you go to Disneyland's various yeah. ones around the world you'll see people dressed up as Mary Poppins you'll yes. see the, the penguin waiters all this kind of stuff right and I'm not sure that's true of a lot of live action Disney movies I mean you know I, we're in this weird, weird world now where like if you go to Disneyland you get to see Marvel characters but I don't yes. think they're part of what we might call a popular Disney canon but this one has survived and it's and it's and it's it's right you know it's a, it's a year or so before Walt Disney dies yeah so Walt um, Disney um, Walt Disney himself sort of dies I think it's 60 Five, six, sixty-seven, sixty-six, sixty-seven. Right, around so that this is one of, of his last features um, that he's. As we both frantically look it up online yeah. uh, and yeah. pretend that it came off at the top of our head. Yeah. Um, no, and I mean, I, I mean, yeah, I'm interested. There's a certainly in the in the sixties and then into the seventies, you do get a, a kind of cluster of, I guess, Disney Disney related products that are live action and animation. So Mary Poppins in sixty-four, and then Bedknobs and Broomsticks seventy-one, sure. Pete's Dragon seventy-seven. Um, and then who framed Roger Rabbit and, and so forth. But there's actually quite a bit of a tradition of that, right? Absolutely. In the sense, it goes back. To, it goes right back to say a Song of the South. Yes. I mean, we'll just jump over that one because there's an interest. There's a whole interesting conversation I had about that movie. But there's things like that. Is it the Reluctant Dragon? Yeah. Um, 
Uh, and then throughout the 50s, they make a lot of live-action movies, sort of Treasure, Treasure Island, I believe, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, lots of experimentations with live-action. But somehow, this is the one that sort of manages to, um, certainly in contemporary culture, bring together a live-action filmmaking that became known for the Disney stable with the, the classic in inverted commas, yeah. Disney cartoon heritage. Yeah, um, no, certainly I think in the po- certainly in the post Bambi. So if we take the first phase, and many Disney scholars have, as a you know, Disney operates in waves and cycles and phases. You have the Disney animation pre Bambi and up until 1942. So Bambi, Dumbo, Fantasia, Pinocchio, Snow White, working backwards, and then after it, you get a sort of series of. Interesting, Sally Los Amigos, The Three Caballeros, Make Mine Music, mm-hmm. Fun and Fancy Free, and then Melody Time, this live action animated. So, yeah, the film is is has lots of it's it's Disney in more than just its animation. Of course, it's um, it's Disney in the way that it's it's combining. Well, it certainly operates in the lineage of these sorts of live action animated uh, hybrids. It also sort of in its use of animation reminded me quite a lot in a weird way of say. Um, Jason and the Argonauts, which we did a few podcasts about uh, back in the, in the sense that it, it, you, you're calling it a hybrid, and I, well, you know, I'm, I'm inclined to agree with that description, but it's not a hybrid in the sense that Who Framed Roger Rabbit is a hybrid, right? It's not, yeah. animation is not used throughout um, yeah. the film, but rather it's the, it's the more memorable set pieces of the film that start to display and utilise the animated techniques. Yeah, and it seems that Who Framed Roger Rabbit um, is... And we talked about this when we talked about Who from Roger Rabbit, the sort of visibility of the seams and the pleasure in seeing the, the seams of construction, even though they are effaced ostensibly in the film itself, it, the pleasurable in, interaction between live action and non, or, or live action and animated components. Um, where we see the scene, Mary Poppins is very clear that we're now in the animation now. Um, and yet there are other moments, um, the stop motion bits that I mentioned, there are moments where animation plays a role in, in itself playing out the magical, enchanting quality of Mary Poppins, sure. as such. So, um, different forms of animation. So it's yeah, it's it's. I will I will defer to my to my friends who went. Yeah, this is a good one to do. Having said that, just before we started this podcast, we were talking about the film, and you made the bold claim that this was very much your baby. So, as the fantasist, why is this your baby? Oh, I've got so much to say about this movie. Um, I'll leave then. See ya. <laughs> Bye, listeners. Um, See you in the new year. I. I it's a weird one for me, this, because I, I really, really like this movie and I have a very nostalgic and uh, warm relationship to it, as I think a lot of people do, because as you say, this is Christmas time um, and it's a film that you often watch sort of sleepily on a sofa having eaten too much turkey, right? And, and, and I feel like that in that comfortable way every time I watch this film. But I'd be lying if I said this was a sort of a beloved specimen of my childhood. And I'd be lying to say whether I'd say this film is in any way perfect. I think it's, in many ways it's a very messy movie. It's a movie with bits and, 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 and lulls and highs and uh, it seems to go off over here and come back over there. And yet it's, um, to, to, to sort of get um, academic and theoretical early on here, uh, I believe it's um, um, a, a theorist called Christian Metz describes the, <laughs> describes the concept of fetish as as a as something that you long for and yet are aware of the distance from which you can access it. And I feel like my desire to interpret this movie is, is quite fetishistic, if, if to use that description, in that I, I'm always trying to prop completely um, understand every nook and cranny of this movie, and yet and yet I still don't think I've quite tapped 
into everything I could say about it. So I've come at this film from lots of lot of different angles in my research, um, psychoanalytically, historically, um, philosophically, um, and I, we'll play with a few of those ideas maybe as we go on, and maybe we'll just have some have some fun. And in many ways, that's what I feel about the movie. It'll just sort of play with the lots of ideas, some of them profound, some of them less profound. But goodness, it's fun as you sit there and watch it on and, full stomach. And then we'll go and fly a kite. Uh, in terms of fantasy theory, I guess the the, the, the sort of the, the things to get out of the way to start with is this is a primary world fantasy, not a secondary world fantasy. It is probably Disney's most well-known example of primary world fantasy, just to remind us of the, the difference if they don't remember from previous podcasts. A primary world fantasy is a fantasy taking place in a world that is meant to be representative of our own, even if that world is historical or set in a different culture or, or from our own, all that kind of stuff, um, in which the fantasy intrudes, rather than a secondary world fantasy in which we enter a world where fantasy is normalised, right? Um, most Disney films are the second. They're fairy tale worlds. This is the former um, this is a film in which uh, in which the fantasy intrudes until, of course, the moment where the characters jump into the animated sure. world, where where the register shifts. So that that would be an interesting thing to pull out. But but it's also it's also interesting in that world. A lot of what it's playing with is animated versions of quite uh, represent representational things, certainly in terms of Englishness yeah. and, and British <laughs> identity. Uh, so that so yeah even then even then it's sort of having a play with that as well so that's fun um, shall we shall we crack on let's get started through the sort of uh, the world of Mary Poppins shall we yes um, God I'm looking forward to this right I know you are I know so you are. so the film um, of course is set in Edwardian London um, around about the beginning of the 20th century we start on this sort of uh, well remembered map painting of London and we get this overture through the various songs and this is another musical. Uh, of the film, um, interestingly, starting with "Feed the Birds," I've got a lot to say about "Feed the Birds," um, but going through the various musicals before landing in Cherry Tree Lane, where we're introduced to the story by Bert, who sort of adopts a sort of chorus-like role in the movie, um, who sort of introduces us to the world of Mary Poppins and actually talks directly to the camera and sort of says, "Oh, hello, welcome to this world," and starts introducing the sort of the world of Cherry Tree Lane, full of. Uh, eccentric neighbours like the Admiral who uh, runs his um, house quite literally like a ship uh, and then before eventually arriving at the Banks family. Um, it's an interesting world, this. I said it was a primary world. It is a primary world fantasy. It is nominally representation of, representational of some sort of form of Edwardian London, yes. but it's interesting how immediately caricatured and straight, strange that world is. If this is Edwardian London, I don't think it's meant to be a realistic Edwardian London. I think this is a sort of Edwardian London in the same way that when we talked about The Greatest Showman, that was uh, 19th century New York. Yes, it's. Uh, I'm sort of. I'm wondering whether it's the it's the pictorial or it's the the fictional world version of Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious. Like it's it's kind of vaguely recognisable as kind of a word, yeah. but it's also nonsense. And so the film itself, it it certainly falls under the bracket of a. Um, I guess a, a cycle is probably too or less uh, less strong of a word, but uh, a kind of group of movies that might be broadly um, characterised as Hollywood London, where. London is not London. It is re-represented through icons and images and St Paul's and whatever it might be, um, but clearly filmed not in London whatsoever. So it's got that sort of backlot quality to it. So it is for all. It's and, and maybe that makes it theatrical. It feels very much like a state a staging of Edwardian London. But it's also a London populated by very eccentric characters. 
Uh, as I said, we've got this admiral that literally has like a funnel on the top of his house. <laughs> yep. So we're tripping into the realm of the fantastic already. Yep. But but um, it doesn't seem so weird that Mary Poppins arrives in this world, right? There's this YouTube um, viral video that goes around with these, one of these alternative trailers called Scary Mary. Yep. That sort of repackages the movie as a horror movie. And I think one of the ways in which the film alleviates any sense of potential realms of the uncanny here is by setting up this very stylized grotesque but in a good way caricatured uh, world already and that's very different from the novels by the way the novels by P.L. Travis don't have that in fact um, fantasy scholars like Nicole um, Didicher talk about the fact that actually the original novels are very much closer to a more uncanny literature in that Mary Poppins isn't necessarily there's always a question as to whether Mary Poppins should be in this world and it's much more of a disturbance that she arrives and she's a much more sort of um, liminal character and that she can be both scary and stern and lovable and that's kind of her charm whilst in this it's it's much more cuddly in that sort of way that you'd expect from a Disney adaptation. Yeah, and I mean Bert himself is is and we will, um, we'll do the whole thing without talking about his accent because what that's, Mary? Oh, he's oh oh he listeners. He's just walked in. Um, so he's you know he goes through a series of of kind of quick changes. So he's he goes from a one man band and then dress, addressing the audience, and then we see him as uh, kind of a street artist, and then we also see him obviously working with the, the chimneys and yeah. so um, and so. There's something quite in terms of liminal. There's there's also a sort of sense in which everything is this idea of performance and everything is you take off one hat and put on another and you can move fluidly between live action and animation from up to down, from the sky to the ground, um, from job to job. And so there's a lot of... uh, that messiness, I think, is an interesting, and hopefully a bit later on I'll talk about the sort of messiness of the style in and of itself in terms of its animation. But... um, Everything seems, you know, a carousel or a, a up and down, a sl- sliding down a banister. There's a lot of to and froing, and I, and that messiness kind of plays out in quite a, a performative, playful way. I'm just, yeah, I, there's a, there's a, a lot going on uh, that creates. I don't know. Again, is carnivalesque, the the hmm. absurd, all these sorts of words that are circulating around that are, that get me thinking on what kind of London is this. Um, and how how that contributes to its identity is potentially a fa- uh, a fantastic version of of London, but a version nonetheless, rather than the it's not going for authenticity. No, absolutely not, and I and I don't think anyone would accuse it of of doing that. I think actually just to dwell on the accent, I think that's part of the the, the accent. Dick Van Dyke gets the, the the classic thing is you slag off Dick Van Dyke for the the silly accent, and it is incredibly silly. Um, people forget that he plays two parts in this, and I would argue in his performance as uh, Mr. Dawes Sr., he actually affects quite uh, acceptable, I mean, if caricatured, but acceptable version of upper-class mm. Britishness in his accent, right? So I wonder if we're not giving the filmmakers a not a, whether we should give them a little bit of a pass on the accent, in that kind of the accent sets up exactly what we're talking about, right? In that it's, it's we know what he's trying to do. He's trying to do Cockney, but it's in not it's not Cockney, and it's clearly not Cockney. It's a performance of Cockneyism that's completely affected by American attitudes and completely affected by uh, a, a sort of pantomime esque yes. performance, right? And I think he's great in the movie, um, Dick Van Dyke. I don't care about the accent. I think he's. I think actually, in a way, that adds to it because, like, you know, you know, why slag off an accent in a movie where people jump into paintings and dance with penguins? Yeah. 
Um, yes, but yes. So, uh, yeah, it's uh, the register of things or the, the hierarchy of things to disbelieve. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, I, I'd happily be served a, a, some drinks by some penguins, sure. but ultimately, that guy's not a cockney. So, we get introduced to the world of, of Cherry Tree Lane and the Banks family by Bert, um, and then we get introduced to the Banks family. And, and again, there's so much to say about this introduction, because we have... We've, so we've got Jane and Michael Banks who are the, who introduced the sort of rebellious twosome. They're constantly driving out nannies. Yes. Uh, they're they're on actually at the start of the movie. They're they're missing. Um, they haven't been found. The nanny's quitting because she can't bear to, to deal with them anymore. Um, so they're, they're they're acting up quite considerably, and we don't quite know why. Um, we have uh, Winifred who is um, playing. Um, who is a suffragette yes. um, and does this amazing song at the beginning about suffragettes only to be interrupted by her husband coming home. Damn right. Um, and quickly hides the um, hides the. Uh, I, I always banner. forget about that kind of yeah. poli- that political... I mean, yeah. it's obviously there, but my memories of the film are not... I don't go straight to Emily Pankhurst votes for women. I go I go to pigs in... Tu- uh, pigs? Penguins in tuxedos. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so, no, that's sort of... That's quite, a, that's quite an interesting... Angle to the film. It's, I, I mean, it's really interesting. As I say, this is one of the things I keep wrestling with the movie, and that her narr- narrative arc in the movie is very odd because she's not in it very much. But there's a suggestion by the end of the, that one of the things, one of the problems in this household is that the parents are absent, right? And a lot of attention we will, we will give to, and is given in sort of scholarship and indeed in the movie uh, Saving Mr. Banks, which yes. is, like a other, is on the absentee of the father and, and the sort of the importance of the father figure in this story. But the mother's also absent, yeah? The reason they have this nanny is that the mother is about, about um, uh, dealing with a bigger political cause here, yeah? Um, and I'm, I'm not convinced the film doesn't, in a, little, in a sort of tacit, gentle way, demonise her for that political conviction. For her absence, yeah. Yeah, and, and I'm not sure the suggestion by the end is that she's perhaps decided not to do that anymore. Um, so there's something really weird going on there. But I think the, the broader thing about how this film functions as a fantasy is that all of the characters in the Banks family um, have an unrealistic fantasy that they don't see as being unrealistic. Okay, So um, George Banks' problem is that he thinks a British house should be run with precision um, and that the bank is incredible and that the world should be run by sensibleness um, and he doesn't see what's happening in front of his eyes. Yeah, He's bumbling, he doesn't see the chaos in his own household as he sings a song about how regimented his household is. The mother has this political conviction in this important cause but doesn't see her own hypocrisy in the way she kowtows to her father. Uh, to her father. Uh, patriarchal structures going on in my head to her husband um, and then we have the children who sort of have this vision of the fantasy nanny that's the only one that comes true uh, but it can only last a certain amount of time it's never go- it's never going to be a satisfactory ending if Mary Poppins stays with the family forever and that's what happens at some point she must leave um, you don't find that out till towards the end but you- she has to leave for this film to work and for the narrative to make sense so there's a very interesting thing about fantasy and perception here, yeah? The film is about subjective perception and how fantasies inform our subjectivity, I think. Because Mary Poppins is the figure um, through which all these fant- individual fantasies are challenged, play out, and ultimately have to change. Yes, I have next to nothing to add to that. Um, I would say that in terms of her fleetingness, you're right that she has to leave because the film has to set up 
the outcome of her intercession mm. into the family um, and how she has sort of reordered and reorganized and uh, yeah the focus on you would be led to believe and certainly this is as you say the focus of saving mr banks that the film is really about the father but uh, rather than it is about the children and and uh, yeah the absence of the mother and certainly a, the the sense of freedom the house is very has lots of different um, components and, and, and rooms and parts to it. So the house itself is quite kind of cavernous and it has multiple layers. And, and, and so the freedom and the movement of the characters between that house and the ability of Mary Poppins to slide up and down these banisters, um, there's something about the house that is both, I don't know, there's something that's quite both restrictive when you see it without Mary Poppins and then the space itself is kind of opened up. And this thing about the characters not seeing what's in front of them, that, that, that the characters themselves sort of see the house as this constraint and the children as Jane and Michael are often framed behind the banisters and there's a there's a sense in which they're imprisoned within this home and it's only when Mary Poppins arrives that that same house becomes transformed. It doesn't mutate, it doesn't metamorphose, it just, it just becomes a different kind of space, um, a space of fantasy where the characters suddenly can pull these amazing things out of bags um, and they can, yeah, they can slide up and down these banisters um, they can ascend through the roof onto the uh, through the um, chimney onto the roof, um, and so yeah, the role of kind of the space, the the type of I think it's that it's that the diegesis and the kind of the fictional world of this imaginary London is is both normal enough, but with the possibility for fantasy to 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 sprout from, and it's really Mary Poppins who who un unlocks that latent fantasy within the setting. She unlocks it and then locks it again. Yes. Right, by the end, of, when she leaves, the fantasy goes with her because I've, now, this is definitely in my penalty box, I've decided, because I've mentioned this on quite a few podcasts, but this is the last time I'll mention it for a while, is she represents this notion of the supernatural being in this really profound way. Um, she is the, the thing from which magic can permeate from in this, in this diegesis, yeah? She is the locus of fantasy. No one else is allowed to do magic in this film, but Mary Poppins is. If Mary Poppins is around, you can experience magic and magical worlds, but Mary Poppins has to be there. But what's really interesting is when she leaves at the end of the movie and travels back up into the sky, the world hasn't changed. Nothing physically has changed. The house remains the same. Uh, George still works at the... Has he quit the bank? He's quit the bank, but they offer him his job back, so he's got his job back. Yeah. Um, no one has done, no, nothing materially has changed. The thing that's changed that's profound is everyone's subjective vision of that world. Yeah. George is a different man because he has different uh, dreams and, uh, and so do the rest of the Banks family. Um, so this is a movie about uh, the way in which fantasy informs perception. I think yes. Um, as much as it's about jumping through paintings and things like that, actually all of that is about um, how fantasy informs perception, which makes it slightly more in line with what I was saying earlier about it being like the the, 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 the source material is all about um, uncanny spaces and seeing things that look strange. This is a movie very obsessed with people looking at things and and looking aghast. And, and having their world shattered and changing and perceptions altering and all that kind of stuff. Bit early tonight, aren't you, Admiral? Nonsense. Bang on the dot as usual. Hard things in the world of finance. Never better. Money's sound, credit rates are moving up, 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 and the British pound is the admiration of the world. Good man. How do things look from where you stand? Big chance here, I'd say. The wind's coming up and the glass is falling. Don't like the look of it. Good, good, good. 
So I'm just going to uh, pause that, no doubt, insightful conversation we were having there, Chris. I don't know if you've been on fantasy-animation.org recently. I... well, yeah, it's it's something I frequent. Sure, sure, because if you do, you'll notice that every week we publish a weekly blog post. Um, this isn't just written by myself or Chris, it's written by lots of different people uh, talking about the relationship between fantasy and animation from multiple angles. So we publish editorials, we publish events uh, reports, film reviews, book reviews, as well as sequence analysis, so which is a good way of sort of diving into a particular moment from a film or TV show that you'd like to talk about. Uh, we also feature multimedia platforms on this form. So I don't know, Chris, I don't know about you, but I always think words are stupid when you can watch something. Fair? I've heard that, I've, in many ways I've heard that, heard that actions speak louder than words, and videos speak louder than actions. Indeed. So if you want to see loud speaking videos, then the best thing to do is to check out our recent video essay by Sadine Elias, who talks about uh, the relationship between soundtracks and Disney cartoons. It's a really fascinating uh, thing up on our website, gathering loads of traction at the moment. Please go check it out. How about if you'd rather listen to something? Again, I'm I'm sort of multi-sensory, so yeah. the written word is sometimes not for me. No. Talk to me about things that you can listen to. So we have a recent bl uh, blog post by Joe Tyler, a lecturer in uh, radio production, who um, has provided us uh, an analysis of Frankenweenie versus the original 1932 uh, Frankenstein and, and the relationship in sound with all of that. We are a multi-speaking, multi-videoing, multi-recording, multi-platforming, transmediaing, multi-multi-multi-multi, transformering, optimus-priming websites available for all your multimedia needs. So if you'd like to get involved either to make some new stuff or to participate in the conversations, all you have to do, well, Chris, why don't you tell them? So if you'd like to contribute to our a blog in a non word format. Sure. Um, you can obviously visit the website and find the blog tab and you there's uh, instructions on how to submit. You can also follow us on Twitter at FanAnimResearch and you can also search for us on Facebook. So if you'd like to contribute anything that falls under the banner of our blog post, whether it's the written word, whether it's something that sounds great and something that looks great, do get in touch. A British bank is run with precision. A British home requires nothing less. Tradition, discipline, and rules must be the tools. Without them, disorder, chaos, moral disintegration. In short, you have a ghastly mess. I quite agree. The so it's really important that the, the, the equilibrium is essentially restored at the mm. end. So, um, yeah, Mr. Banks is sort of re, yeah, rehired as a, as a junior partner. So he's back it, within the system. Um, the children itself are, yeah, they haven't, no, nothing has changed in the exuberant way that the change has affected. It's really through their, it, it's subjectivity, but it's also their, the network of relationships. So mm -hmm. we get a sense that the family is, is stronger and their network or the, the network of relationships between them is, is stronger um, for Mary Poppins having having been there. Bert is still, he's kind of not, part, he's not part of that, but he's, yeah, he, he's, it seems like his, his identity is firmly rooted in his ability to move between different vocations. Yeah, and so yeah, yeah. his mobility is never checked and never, um, certainly with Mary Poppins, it's never, uh, I'm glad that he doesn't go away with her. I'm glad that he stays grounded. Yeah, yeah, yeah. but it'd also be tempting to like, you'd, it'd be tempting to also have like a ending coder where Bert like is hired as the house butler or something like yeah. that, right? And that doesn't happen either. Yeah, nothing, nothing changes like that, which is good too yeah. in a way. But what about, so, okay, so what about characters that float in the air for no reason? Um, so, 
Because of Mary Poppins. But, yeah, okay, so everything is, 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 can be tied back to her mm-hmm. as this magical intrusion into a world that is itself already slightly askew or slightly absurd, mm-hmm. and her presence into it amplifies or brings out a latent absurdity um, that we presume returns when she then, when she then leaves. Um, yeah. Okay, so she, the Banks family need a new nanny. Uh, the children sing a lovely little song. Uh, they present their wishes to the father. The father goes, well, this is all loads of nonsense. He throws them into the fire. They get brushed up the chimney and, and chimneys, a recurring motif in this film, uh, up into the rooftops and up into the sky. And Mary Poppins arrives the next day um, in a whirlwind and a, and a grasp. And, and that's an interesting sequence in that um, we see it all from the children's point of view. Mary Poppins arrives being looked at by other people. Yes. Um, and... <laughs> I actually, in, in, in previous work, I've thought about this in terms of a very classic psychoanalytic theory by Laura Mulvey on, on, on gazing and the idea of, of um, objects of fantasy in films. Now, obviously, if people know this theory, it's a reasonably famous theory, um, but it's, it's not famous enough to be quoted on, uh, on things outside our circles often. Um, but um, the idea that, you know, um, uh, that one character looking at another character reduces that the character being looked at to a spectacle um, and gives the other character agency. And, and Mulvey talks about this largely in relation to male on female characters and as, as evidence of patriarchal uh, dominance and positioning in mainstream cinema. Um, I think there's another thing going on here in that, that, in that sequence. Uh, m- the children look at Mary. They are they are looking at her. She exhumes looked atness. She is the optical spectacle ob- object of spectacle. She arrives. She pushes all the other nannies out there, and we get our first proper special effects sequence. Uh, she is the fantasy object, and yet her agency isn't removed. It is precisely the abundance of agency that she exhumes that makes her a fantasy, an object of fantasy spectacle, because she can do things that we can't and and be things we can't. Is it important with regards to fantasy issues of spectacle that there is, in this case, a surrogate spectator? That in order for the yeah. fantasy of the sequence to be qualified, there needs to be an internal character or a, an internal structure, often the character, that does a double take or um, is the is the subject of the spectacle. Um, I, I think it's important in this movie, I think it's important in that sequence, and I think it's important thematically, because as we've already sort of established, this is a movie about uh, fantasy changing the way you look at the world. Yeah. Uh, and that's literally what's happening in that moment. In that moment, uh, the kids see something they don't think should be happening, happening. But this seems to mark a lot of the children's engagement with Mary Poppins. Yeah. When she then <laughs> comes into the house uh, and she is hired into a space that is... That is I mean, her references presumably check out, but in terms of a space... She makes a point of not doing references. There we go. So in a a space that has previously been defined as one of discipline and order that is imparted by the father, um, albeit in his um, kind of provocative absence, a lot of Jane and Michael's reaction, certainly within the first few minutes of meeting Mary Poppins, is one rooted in a kind of disbelief, not necessarily at the intrusion of this female character, but at the kinds of things that can suddenly happen. Mm-hmm. So bags that can operate in as, the, as these sorts of cavernous spaces. Um, and so it seems like, uh, certainly at the beginning of the film, when Mary Poppins is entering into the house, it's, it seems like a, a, an accumulation of the victory of fantasy, that suddenly all of, these, um, all of these moments and impossibilities that are, and presumably by the reactions of the children, we are inclined to believe are are things that they've never seen before. There's a sense of kind of incredulity to the way that Jane and Michael continually 
try and understand. So it's a different sort of disbelief. They have a fractious relationship with their father, but it's a different kind of disbelief at Mary Poppins. Um, and so, yeah, I think the, the idea of, of looking and, and gazing and, and the relationships between characters that are structured by relays of looking yeah. becomes really important to the way that fantasy is allowed into, or the fantasy of subjectivity or subjective mm-hmm. fantasy is allowed into the film. That's where we, that's where we see the fantasy. Um, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I agree. And, and this leads us to, I guess, the first moment of animation in the movie. Right? There we which go. Is, which, is, uh, which is where you make your, your bread and butter, Chris. Um, so, uh, so we get the spoonful of sugar sequence and yes. we get uh, interesting it's about order and disorder right so it's a yeah. this is a wonderful little paradox of a sequence there right in that she is coming to this house her job and the narrative will be to bring a degree of chaos and disorder to a house that is already chaotic and disorderly except the father sees it as orderly and she does that first off by by creating a magical rupture that tidies up a nursery. Yes. Yeah. So the disorder enters into to create order in the nursery. So that's an interesting thing going on there. And we get this wonderful stop motion sequence. But it's it, but it's this sort of domesticated spectacle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's I mean throughout the, se- the throughout the sequence where you see sort of footage replaying, rewinding, going back, beds making themselves, sheets folding, etc. You can kind of I mean the, the joins. Laura Mulvey has written an excellent uh, to to cite Laura Mulvey yeah. and a, uh, an interesting uh, piece about um, kind of the the clumsy sublime or the visibility of back projection part of the pleasure of back projection um, in kind of classical Hollywood movies is that you you see that it's kind of flagrantly artificial and Tarantino recently in, in film most notably in, in something like Sin City has tried to play with the clear artificiality of, of back projection um, and certainly in this sequence where the clothes are sort of jumping into back into the um, drawers and the letters the build letter uh, uh, letter blocks jump into Jane's hands. There's lots of animation on. There's lots of forms of animation on show. Um, and what's funny about the sequence, I think, is that Mike, Michael's inability to do it, to conduct magic, is offset against the two Mary and um, and, and Jane. Their ability to play with magic and play with. Um, ideas of representation and so there's something the sequence climaxes with Mary Poppins having a sort of duet with her own figure in the mirror Mm -hmm. Um, so there's lots of this sequence is a sequence of of different kinds of of effect that are immediately used as a cue in to sort of thinking about how she is how is she going to disrupt the world of their existence but it's not something that is the kids get on board with it very quickly. So this isn't a rupture in the way that fantasy totally dismantles and deconstructs. It seems to be a kind of a, a pleasurable fantasy that will allow them to, I don't know, enjoy their time in the home. It's a different kind of fantasy. Yeah, absolutely. But as I say, like that's, the Scary Mary video viral is playing with that, right? And that basically, obviously, what she is doing is fundamentally challenging and problematic. And if it was to happen in real life, would be would scare would traumatize everyone, but it doesn't. It, it doesn't do that. It, it's something to be amazed at or shocked momentarily. Or if you're the cook, you know you faint theatrically and we laugh and we get over it. You know, no one is. No one's that surprised. Yeah, everyone is surprised, but not that surprised. So, what does that do to the happens. way that fantasy is being registered? Then is it does that mm-hmm. dilute the, fan, the the moments of fantasy? Because well, if it's all fantasy, then nothing. And I'm just interested in. Well, it, I would argue it doesn't dilute it because I would argue it stops the fantasy tripping into horror. Okay, right? horror is is a genre that really um, picks at 
that problem, right? Whether it be uh, horrible, marvellous moments where the world that we know ceases to be and we're terrified. So if you think of something like David Lynch, quite a lot of the eerie aspect of David Lynch is you feel like you're in a real world completely without rules and completely without any sense of, of, of grounding in, in the real. And then there's a, the other is the sort of the uncanny um, God, what am I looking at? That thing is troubling me because of the very act of staring at it, the monstrous, the, the abject. This is neither of those things. It's, it's playing with those same types but it's it's remaining in a realm of of pleasurable wonder, which is where I would place fantasy. But I'm, I, other scholars um, uh, better than me would disagree. No, I, well, w- wonder I think is the kind of key to this, mm-hmm. to the key key to this movie. It's that if Mr. Banks and his resistance to Mary Poppins is is because she, her brand of discipline doesn't seem to be disciplined at all, um, and so and, and if that's if that's how. If that's how the the rules of the game are set up, then the fantasy seems to be registered as a not as threatening or as as dangerous to the children, mm-hmm. but as a source of escape and and wonder. And this obviously links into the role of animation later. The kind of the second, perhaps more famous, um, more celebrated moment of, of of animation in the in the film. Well, let's skip to that because that's basically what happens next, right? Is that we have yeah. this, this this first opening musical number, a spoonful of sugar makes the medicine go down, and then the next day we see them go on a on a trip uh, and then they famously jump into a chalk painting uh, painted by Bert, interestingly. So actually, lots to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. interestingly. <laughs> okay, so if Mary's the thing that provides us access to the magic, Bert has to draw it first. Um, should we do that classic thing where we say, hey, drawing, it's about... Uh, well, we can... I mean, let's not say it's about animation. I think what I'm interested in in terms of Bert, Bert's identity as a chalk artist and one of one of many jobs that he inhabits during the course of the film uh, is, that it, is this this plays with, I guess, within about 30 seconds, it plays with the history of animation insofar as the early chalk drawings, sketching, um, the role of... of of the artist within a sort of lightning sketch. There's lots of people that have written on the uh, pre or early proto animation forms or the origins of, of animation on on stage and in sort of parlor games, Victorian toys, this kind of thing, um, which is no coincidence given the setting of the, the film itself. Mm-hmm. So Bert is drawing in the first decade of the 20th century. He's drawing on a street using chalk in a way that early animators would have drawn on chalkboards and played with stop motion effects to create the illusion of movement. This is the transition from early lightning sketch traditions in uh, yeah, in the home and on stage, ultimately that would become the first, um, first kinds of animated films. And so Donald Crafton has written about the trope of early animation being the hand of the artist. Lots of early animated cartoons show the hand coming in and drawing, and then the animation effectively takes over. So here we have Burt as a, as a chalk drawer, an artist, chalk drawer, artist, um, an artist. And then, but when we jump into the world where the characters jump into the chalk drawing, we're now in cell animation, or we're now in a different kind of, uh, of animated representation. We've had debates about the representation, because I think my memory of the film is always that this is classic Disney, that this so, is... Should we just set up the distinction we're making? I think we talked about it as we started the podcast, but I just want to make sure listeners who aren't, you know, uh, up on their Disney history... Who are or, too busy, or, you know, filling their mouths with mince pies and turkey absolutely, in October. Absolutely, and having, having, you know, sensible lives that don't involve watching cartoons for a living. Um, what, uh, what 
so there's classic classic Disney is the era of say Snow White, uh, Bambi, Pinocchio, these kind of movies, right? Yeah. Um, and and it's known. What, what are its you know bullet point traits? Well, I suppose, yeah. So the iterate I mentioned earlier about the phases of Disney animation, and depending on which Disney scholar you read, um, you have kind of the classic period the Middle Ages slash the Lost Years, and then the kind of re- Renaissance or, or post-Walt, post-Middle Years Renaissance. So like, where it, so Mary Poppins comes out in this middle period. It does, it does. It, or it's, Looking at the chronology of where it comes to kind of early 60s, it's post, as I mentioned earlier, post Sleeping Beauty and um, Snow White, uh, and um, 101 Dalmatians. Uh, so when we say classic Disney, we, we're really talking loosely about... A, a broad way of understanding the typical features, though typical and classic are slightly different, the typical features of a Disney animated cartoon, so issues of kind of hyper-realism um, and a certain degree of standardisation within representation. And that standardisation comes yeah. both through production processes. So quite technically sophisticated. Yeah. So, I mean, listeners can go back to the Snow White episode to sort of hear about this, but um, technically sophisticated use of sort of um, in-depth visuals, costly production processes, yep. all this kind of stuff. Um, so Disney's relation, Disney has a, an ongoing and interesting relationship to forms of technology, whether it's the multiplane camera, which we've talked about before, but also Technicolor. Um, yeah. And so the use, the hyper-realism or a degree of realism within Disney animated features can be connected to a certain degree of what Chris Pallant would call for a classic kind of Disney formalism, the, the way in which Disney's formal style was really consolidated in this early period um, through the way that it articulates certain rules of the world, um, characters and, and, and so forth. So there's there's this period of, of classic Disney um, as a foundational and important period that gave birth to a quote-unquote Disney formula that gave us character archetypes, certain kinds of settings, arguably the role of fantasy within Disney animation, the importance of fantasy, um, I think originally, I mean, I thought it was kind of being gestured to here. The reason is, is that there is a kind of institutional element to hyperrealism. Um, okay. In that it is both an aesthetic, you know, it is an, an aesthetic, a type of Disney aesthetic mm-hmm. or style, but it is also institutionalized by the, the Disney's nine old men. So the, the, the group of, of men um, who worked on Disney animation and kind of founded the most famous of these. And, and be, these men were old? These were my old, and, and there were nine, nine of them. Good to yeah, know. yeah, yeah, sure. yeah. Don't mistake them for the, the ten old men because that's <laughs> something slightly different. Um, so the nine old men, loosely speaking, are are a kind of group of of animators who worked uh, at the Disney Studio um, during, I guess, well, during the twenties, really twenties, thirties, and forties. Many of them became directors, but they are sort of the the center of the Disney creativity, um, and it's really those who standardised a set of formalising principles, notably Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston, writing this book, um, The Illusion of Life, which is about how Disney animation is about about forms of realism. So anything from character design, character animation, um, the way that bodies move and so forth. So one of these directors was, was uh, one of these nine old men, sorry, was Ward Kimball, who joined the studio in the mid-1930s, and he worked on Pinocchio and worked on the Mad Hatter and the Cheshire Cat and Alice in Wonderland. So his pedigree, if you like, um, is within classic, the classic Disney period. He was in charge, or he was the head animator of the animation in Mary Poppins. So it has that kind of classic Disney quality, whatever we might, however we might qualify that. But at the same time... Uh, and this is this is where the tension that we were talking about off air is that off air, um, 
in October, um, is that it also marries that 1940s, 50s style with a, a, a different kind of aesthetic. And I think that, that by now, with 101 Dalmatians, has replaced that original absolutely in Disney animation. So by 1950s, a different kind of production process, Xerox photography, so allowing animators to, uh, to photograph or photocopy um, and print their drawings directly onto cells. The upshot of this is one, a quicker production, but uh, many of the criticisms of this process is that it's kind of quite, it seems quite low budget in the way that it looks, and it has a sort of compositional uh, looseness or an erratic quality where the black lines around characters are slightly darker and maybe colours don't quite reach to the edge. Uh, and so some of that, it's been conceived of as a sort of visual sloppiness that ultimately the re-releases of these kinds of um, early 50s films such as uh, 101 Dalmatians, um, is that the re-release of these films on DVD and Blu-ray is doing absolutely nothing for the, their sloppiness because now you can see their sloppiness in, in HD. Um, but So it, the, the film has this sort of, it gestures towards the a 30s, 40s golden age, but for you, it seems that it's actually more in line with the sort of 50s, 60s Xerox phase of Disney Studio. Well, I, just instinctively when we were talking about this, I felt that, yeah, that it, to me, when I think of the images here, they're thick black lines. Yeah. They're, they're, they're very, I mean, you know, to, to sort of try to distill this down for everyone, it's, it's, you know, when you're looking at a Disney movie and it doesn't feel like it's a cartoon, it somehow feels very real. That's usually when we're talking about the classic Disney hyper-realist style. And when we're talking about things that very obviously look like cartoons, that's that's this sort of Xerox process. And to me, this very obviously looks like a cartoon. But having said that, that could simply be because of the sort of uh, odd but fun, uh, clumsy, sublime uh, yeah. process of placing them in the, with these live-action characters, right? Uh, because there's, you know, there's not real any attempt to sort of make this look formally integrated at all. Like, um, but it, so isn't that, that, this goes back to, I suppose, questions that we, you, we could level at all animation, live action hybrids, that it's really important that Bert and Mary, when they're in the, and the, when they're in the, the, the drawing that becomes a, a cell animated sequence, that they are not collapsed into the same visual style, they're very much separate, that they are wanderers within this broader animated world, um, and so th that disjuncture between live action and animation helps helps sort of smooth over or, or helps to qualify the, the fact that these characters are physically intruding into an ulterior space from which they then depart. Yeah, I mean, we always use this word hybrid. I say we, both me and Chris and sort of I'm always communities. Using it. I'm always using it. I wonder if that's a misleading term. Because yeah. to me, hybrid, like a cyborg is a hybrid, right? A cyborg is part human, part robot, and it creates a third thing that's a mix of the two in between. Um, and it's hard to tell where the human parts of a cyborg end and, and the beginning of a cyborg, the robot parts begin. That's the point. This, to me, is not a hybrid. This is a, a collision, a, a, a... Mixed a, media? Yeah, but, but again, it's not mixed, is it? It's um, it's it's colliding media. Yeah, it's. Uh, I mean, if I was if I was teaching students right now and I wanted to sell smart, I'd say it's a dialectic. Yeah, but it's it's an opposition that's power or energy is in the fact that it's not coming together. So, is it that animation, when animation and and live action come together? It's really a, it's really the relationship between oil and water. Yes, you can mix and mix and mix and mix, but there will always be separate and visibly separate. Yes, that's right. Yes, this is oil and water, and that's kind of the pleasure of it. Yeah, absolutely. No, I think and and there's so there's actually an interesting relationship between, as you said, the clumsy sublime um, of of a visibility of technology, and then a clear 
animation and live action can never be, uh, they will always be d distinct whether or not we see that distinct quite like, um, well, saying? I guess you know the other thing is obviously cell animation, right? I mean, yes, that's true. There, there's, I guess, an argument, although I probably wouldn't necessarily subscribe yeah. to myself, that you could create, and people have created, arguably, uh, digital animation that isn't oil and water with analog or digital filmmaking, right? It bl it blurs. You know, it, it, it's possible not to notice it. Absolutely, that's not true with cell. Though. Yeah. cell animation declares its. Self. Well, uh, yes, I, absolutely. I, I do think with the, the digital technology thing is that it, it is interesting that the films themselves often uh, pull the wool over your eyes and that you're, you're kind of told not to notice and then you watch the special features and they tell you that it's oil and water. Yeah, yeah, yeah um, sure. And so that's an interesting thing. Whereas here you see that play out. You're right that cell animation makes no claim to be able to convince us that it is realistic and actually but it's really important because the world of Mary Poppins has already established that this is a drawing mm -hmm. so why would it be why would it look like anything else mm -hmm. um, and it is so it's really important that we have a source within the fictional world um, that is this drawing that the characters can then jump into and part of the pleasure is that they're now in a drawing mm -hmm. they're not in a, a, in a space that is passing itself off as a real space it's really important that the, the chalk drawing remains artificial it remains Burt Mays it's a jolly holiday with Mary. Mary makes your heart so light. When the day is grey and ordinary, Mary makes the sunshine bright. Oh, happiness is blooming all around her. The daffodils are smiling at the dove. When Mary owns your hand, so they go. They have a lovely jolly holiday. They, they do um, go round around. I'm a jolly holiday now, having talked about Mary Poppins. <laughs> uh, they go round very good. Uh, they go round a roundabout that comes off its hinges, and they have a horse race. Uh, Mary Poppins wins the race, and then they sing the classic supercalifragilisticexpialidocious, docious aliexpiasticfragilirupus. Uh, say it backwards. That's that's a that's a that's what a PhD will get you. Be able to do that backwards. Um, um, and which is a glorious uh, number and becomes a really important motif for the rest of the movie. I, I just a couple of words on that. I always that's a really interesting. There are a couple of little mottos, right, that just sort of stay in your head, almost like a sort of Kantian categorical imperative. Like uh, it's like you know, feed the birds. Uh, Supercalifragilistic is a word to say when you have nothing to say. These these things get repeated over and over and over again. And just the, the, the supercalifragilistic expialidocious, it's it's sort of like we're talking about these sort of fantasy being a way of expressing your own subjectivity in a world of fixedness and order. Supercalifragilistic is a signifier without anything to signify. It's a ver yeah, a verbal fan uh, verbal fantasy. Yeah, it's yeah, like it's, a vocalization it's, of. It's, it means anything. It means everything. It means nothing. Um, but it yet yeah, expresses your ability. It expresses yourself when words fail you. Um, it's, it's the '60s version of Hakuna Matata. Uh, <laughs> yes, yes, exactly. Yes. Um, uh, actually, just on that note about you know that just before except that means no worries. Yeah, for the rest of your days. But this doesn't mean anything. No, um, that's know. true. Um, on that note, just before they leave the painting or leave the drawing, um, and the drawing is then demolished because of the um, the, the rain. Mm. Um, are we invited to read the characters jumping into the... Because normally we would say an animation, the animation is a clear moment of fantasy that is clearly marked out as such. Um, and many mixed media, oil and water, yeah. um, films from Annie Hall to Anchorman to uh, the Hollywood musical 
Well, even going back to think, as I say, Song of the South, the, the, yeah. central, uh, the central motif of the Song of the South is that when we enter the world of Uncle Remus and his stories, we enter the animation world. So animation is supposed to be, you know, and when Gene Kelly dances yeah. with um, Jerry Mouse, like these are, animation re- represents the, the fantasy. Okay, mm-hmm. so animation is a, 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 an interlude or an insert. Are we invited to read the characters, Bert, the children, Mary Poppins, jumping into the painting or the drawing as any more or less fantastic than other things that happen in there. Is it, That's really interesting. Is it amplified because it's animation or is it one of many moments of fantasy and it, it just happens to be a drawing? I'm, yeah. I'm wondering what the is, role is of the animation... More, is this more fantastical than, say, the, the, the tea party on the ceiling that will, will follow yes. in live action with special effects but not with animated yeah. special effects? Bo- both are... I think not with animated yeah. special effects. I'd have to really carefully look through the scene, which I'm not going to do live on a podcast. Um, good question. I That's don't... my difficult question for you this yeah, week. Yeah, yeah, Thanks. yeah. Thanks. Impossible so, question. Um, I, I am thinking out loud. I think there's something very interesting going on in the animation uh, of, of what they choose to animate, right? In the, right, we, you know, uh, we could do anything in this sequence, yeah? And, and the, the P.L. Travers books have them going into various different worlds that are much more confusing and, and strange than this one. This one, they basically go to the English countryside or, or, or Hyde Park or something like that. Um, they have a race around a, a roundabout, um, and then they go on a fox hunt, uh, which is hilarious in terms of its sort of um, representation of, of Britishness or UKness, in that we get this sort of uh, faux Scottish fox being chased by a bunch of English aristocrats. Um, so this is a, this is very SNP baiting. I think yeah. um, that's a that's a joke for the internal politics of our of our UK listeners. But those uh, elsewhere, don't worry about it. I'm trying not to. Um, so it's very interesting that what they choose to animate is actually, as much as it is very fantastical, playing with very traditional conservative visions of Englishness. Uh, whilst the Uncle Albert sequence is very kind of odd and peculiar, and, and it often is, I know it's my dad's favourite bit of the movie, um, not to cite my father to prove a point. One for the dads. But, but it's sort of, it's, it's very funny and subversive because it's sort of, um, it's very anarchic, right? It's very anarchic and, and just just there for laughs and giggles. So I haven't answered your question, but I have said a lot of words. So there you go. I'm trying to super califragilistic expialidocious yeah. is the answer. I guess it just seems that the children never look as happy and as safe and secure as they do in that animated yeah, world. That's true. Uh, it's the it's. It, it seems ironically the most disciplined and ordered, and maybe it's because it comes from. Bert's design it is a world by design mm-hmm. and so there's something quite interesting about the the kind of anarchy because once they've left once they've left the drawing or once the drawing has been been destroyed um, then we get the Uncle Albert and the tea party on the ceiling mm-hmm. and then we get a series of kind of then it becomes for me it becomes a different kind of film it becomes a lot of interiors well and that's very interesting yeah you're right it gets sort of it gets back to what it was supposed back at the beginning right yeah um that that because you say it's it's more ordered i would agree in terms of it's that the sequence as its internal structure but actually i was talking about this one being quite messy i always find the animation bit the most messy bit <laughs> right in that it's the it's it seems to basically take the audience's attention for 20 minutes half an hour and then the film it's long. Gets, it's, yeah. I mean, it's literally a holiday from the rest of the movie, right? Yeah. It, there's no, there's no narrative um, addition there, right? There's no thematic complication. There's no, no, we don't learn anything new about the characters. It's, you know, this is not a functional moment. That's part of its pleasure. It is literally there to 
be enjoyed and they go from sequence to sequence enjoying it. Um, it's a little holiday and vacation from the plot and then we get back to the plot straight after. So, it's imp- so the animation allows that visually yeah. to play out. It is clearly an interlude. Um, within, the, within the narrative, it is a moment where the real world is being suspended. And so the, presumably it's happening in real time, but it's, yeah. it seems to be a, it's both of that world, from that world, and nowhere from that, nowhere within that world. It's, it's, it's interesting because Disney did a lot of stuff on television, didn't he? What is it, the Walt Disney sort of presents, where he did a lot of these sort of compilation shows where he'd do like, uh, he'd present... Then, you know, in between the episodes, he'd present things and there'd be a sort of live action uh, series that he commissioned, then a quick cartoon and then something else. And all that sort of stuff. It almost feels like sort of the film invokes that structure, right? Except yeah. it's Mary Poppins, not Walt Disney, that's sort of leading us through these various uh, fun uh, interludes and episodes that yeah. don't really always add up to much. So that sequence doesn't add up to much, just in terms of the practicality of narrative. Not that I care too much about that, but it, you know, it does strike me as the moment the film completely deviates from any narrative purpose. Yeah. Um, but once the, once the drawing is destroyed, I feel like we get back on track because it then becomes about the family and yep. it becomes about Jane and Michael's, again, relationship with their father mm-hmm. or to their father because the, that's the first time the first time the children go to the bank or at least see yeah. see the bank after we get the feed the bird sequence yes um, uh, another motto repeated again and again and again throughout this movie feed the birds feed the birds feed the birds and there's a I mean I have not got time to we have not got time to get into this but there's a really interesting sort of ethical engagement going on here in terms of what the film is trying to ask its characters to do because what does that sentence mean feed the birds it obviously means slightly more than what it, the literal uh, meaning, right? There's, there's a metaphor it's trying to play with, but it's hard to work out what that metaphor is, um, other than uh, be more imaginative, because to feed the birds requires you to have experienced this imaginative vision conjured by Mary Poppins of the bird woman and her song. Um, and by being more imaginative, you become more empathetic, more charitable, and more uh, ethical in your engagement with the world because you, again to quote the movie you, you see past the end of your nose mm. Ima- the imagination is the vessel that allows you to see past the end of your nose um, if you can imagine the bird woman then you will give her the tuppence the next day um, mm. so there's something really interesting going on there as well about that's a very profound point to make for 10 minutes in a Keep kids movie where we've light. been dancing with penguins 10 minutes before right? it's a film full of these little weird moments and and confusing things to unpack yes um all the richer for it though absolutely no absolutely so so yes yes we get this sequence they go to the bank we get um uh, dick van dyke doing his second performance as the door so and this is the performance that he then reprises in the new film so the new film is is he okay i'm learning this live on air listeners there we go um live this is live in october you are learning um that's, so the trailer for the film has very recently been released and it climaxes with him tap dancing on a table as um, Mr. Jaw, Mr. Dawes Sr. That's very interesting because there's a very macabre moment at the end of this movie where Mr. Dawes Sr. dies because he died laughing. So I'm wondering um, whether actually the, the, maybe the, the new film, maybe maybe he is now an old... Mo- well, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe it's Bert. Yeah, we'll wait and see. Maybe it's Bert. Maybe it's Bert. Oh, God, yeah. Um, so yes, so okay, so we've had the tea party, we've had on the ceiling, we've had the children going to the bank um, and kind of causing chaos. Uh-huh. That's I guess a nice parallel to if Mary Poppins comes into their world and upturns it for the good, 
the assumption here is that the children have gone into the bank and kind of caused a scene. Yes, upturned it for the bad. Although by yeah. that point, we're definitely on their side. Absolutely. Because we've, yeah. had, because we've had the Feed the Birds sequence and we get that kind of, you know, horrible echo of it, which is, you know... Um, if feed the birds, what nonsense. Uh, if you feed the birds, all you'll get is fat birds. Yes. Um, right, which is, um, yeah. And then Jane yeah. and Michael give, the, give, Mr., uh, give their father um, uh, the money to make amends. At the end, yes, yes, absolutely, at the end. But the, 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 the whole tantrum or rebellion happens because the father wants them to invest the tuppence in the bank yeah. and they want to give their tuppence to the bird woman. Okay, I realise we missed out perhaps the best... Step in time, which is my absolute. Have we missed that? Oh, oh, so step in time did that is. Come after is that? I thought. Yeah, I yeah. So because after they've left the bank, that's when Bert. Well, Bert's the, a chimney sweep. Um, but there's a hot. There's. I think the step in time bit for me is the is the bit that that I always that I always remember because I can't believe that Dick Van Dyke is able to do these things uh-huh. by jumping over a, a, a chimney sweep stick. Um, but that obviously t- that, uh, that that takes that's another mode of com- profound disorder, isn't it? I love my favourite bit in that very quite long sequence. There, the step in time sequence is when they start running through the household and they go, you know, uh, and like they just grab random objects and 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 respond to what anyone's saying. Yeah, you know, step yeah. in time, step in time, and yeah. and just cause muck through the household. One of my abiding memories of the um, of the film is the the smoke that turns into steps. I've always I've always kind of remembered that the. That her her ability to change the world around her and the kind of smoke into steps and the sort of the way that the fantasy ascends, it's now no longer contained by the geography of the house. We're now the fantasy is kind of everywhere. It's, yeah, it's yeah. significant that she comes from the sky and then leaves by kind of flying away. Um, now the fantasy is kind of everywhere. I mean, we're now up on the roof, mm-hmm. uh, and it's really taking us. It's taking us into the pavement, but it's taking us up onto the roof. And so the fantasy is sort of. I don't know. Seems to be expanding and, and kind of, go, as you said earlier, kind of goes where Mary goes. Mm-hmm. Um, and again, it's if remember, it's another scene where Jane and Michael are sort of in disbelief at the things that can happen. Mm-hmm. Crucially, Mary Poppins and, and kind of Bert are. Yep, this is just happening. It's the children that they've never seen this before. That's actually the other thing that the kind of the past relationship between Bert and Mary Poppins. Which is that this like, has happened. This has happened before. Yeah. That she's always putting these kinds of yeah, stunts. And, and yet it's not really. It's so weirdly nuanced. This movie. Like it's just there's a line about it, and we're just invited to fill in the gaps as to why. Um, you know, there's a quasi-familial, quasi-brother-sister, quasi-romantic relationship yeah, yeah. between them, but the film doesn't feel the need to sort of delve into any of that. Um, yeah. And yeah, yeah, hell yeah, he's seen all of this before. Um, he's he's been there, done that with Mary Poppins. So the um, fantasy. Is that, I'm just interested in the kind of the various registers. If fantasy yeah. is playing out, playing along the fault lines of subjectivity and subjective experience, that uh, fantasy, the the, the the identity of it as a fantasy is always qualified by the person who's witnessing it. It's the yeah. it's the fantasy for the children in a way that it's not quite the same fantasy for Mary Poppins, obviously, but Bert as well. So it's a fantasy because it's a novelty, and maybe the second time it happens, it's I don't know. I, I don't. I'm just kind of playing out the, no, sure, the sure, role sure. of the, the again the role of the gaze, but the role of the the person who receives and understands it, the fantasy and the role of. Uh, to repeat this, to sort of go back to this again, the role of Mary is a catalyst yes. to, for for psychological and and subjective change. Right? She is the person that changes your worldview. Yeah. Um, she changes everyone's worldview in that film. Perhaps the exception being Bert, and the implication there is that he thinks so fondly of her because he once changed 
she once changed his worldview, and now his worldview is rooted in the world of Mary Poppins. If you know, if Mary, when Mary Poppins returns, uh, which we've obviously not seen yet, because for one last time, this is October when we're recording yeah. this. Uh, I don't know how they'll do it, but Jane and Michael can't react in absolute aghast uh, and and awe when she slides up a banister because they've already seen it happen. Yes, they've already experienced that rupture in their world. So once they've seen it happen once, it will happen again. This all all happened before and will happen again. I get the sense though. Yes, you're absolutely right. I get the sense that how they how they're doing it is one through their children mm-hmm. but also that fantasy is something that you can or your understanding and appreciation of fantasy is something that you can lose yes. when you ascend to but, adulthood so, so that's but that's in, yeah, well so the, so they'll either go down the classic hook uh christopher robin uh cliche of oh they've forgotten it all um or or they'll create a very different familial structure in the new movie to what we've got here because because the the, the adults this time will be in on the adults will almost be like Bert, right? Yes. In this new one. Um, and the children will be the focus of this uh, rupture and change. Because actually the children, <laughs> because they're children in the movie, they don't need that much uh, they don't need to go through that much of a journey. No. Yeah? They work it out, they get it. She's magical, she's cool, she's practically perfect in every way. Uh, they're on board. It's it's the parents and specifically George Banks that has to go through this, played um, expertly uh, by by uh, oh, by David Tomlinson, um, who is just brilliant. But yeah. um, uh, so there's fa- so there's so again, I mean, to kind of pick out the the fantasy, there's there obviously we, children's relationship with animation is a, a kind of default narrative. Yep. That animation is a child's medium, which we've et- talked about, et- etc. Um, fantasy, where fantasy sits on that, it's important that the fantasy is aimed at is aimed at the children, received by the children with wonder, dismissed as ill-disciplined by the adults. So there's a, a real sort of a, a kind of generational element to fantasy that is that is important to the way and actually it's clearly important to the sequel as well given the role of the role of children that children need to be there to to understand and 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 go with the fantasy in a way that adults present in a way that adults who are more resistant to don't buy into the fantasy with such fervor and vigor as children do yeah no i agree with that so it will as i say it's a when this when this film is so much about familial relationships and dynamics, how they play those dynamics out in the new movie might be the secret to its success or its failure. Because if they manage to play out a new dynamic that's equally profound and nuanced and interesting with all these moments in there, then hey, brilliant, I'm up for it. But if they managed, if it, if it falls back on some pretty tired Hollywood cliches of of how you create a sequel out of a beloved children's uh, mm. classic, then then. We have issues, but um, I'm I feel like we're into the fi- yeah. I feel like we're into the okay. So we're into the final stretch. The wind well, is about to well, change. Well, let's go fly a kite then. Chris. Yes, I'd love um, to. So yes, the profound moment of change in the movie. The wind changes and George changes. Yeah. The the, the moment this film the beginning is is a, a household is run with precision and the end is George running around giggling with his children play. Uh, singing let's go fly a kite and send it soaring well the first instance that he's brought into the fantasy goes back to what you said earlier about the supercalifragilisticexpialidocious mm-hmm. yeah. that his acceptance of fantasy is played out verbally he doesn't start changing he doesn't become subject to fantasy in that way mm-hmm. his acceptance of fantasy and his embracing of Mary Poppins and the shift as you say in his world view mm-hmm. um, comes through his 
his repetition of supercalifragilisticexpialidocious yeah. and, and then his reaction and his relationship to that word completely changes when he hears it originally it's what what nonsense it doesn't mean anything therefore we shouldn't say it uh, yeah. what he realizes in that meet in the meeting where he's about to get fired uh, is that actually he if he uses it it can mean so much more than the sort of the world that he currently inhabits yeah. and then sadly it becomes a weapon because mr um Doors then dies, but yes, um, such a he's weird we- wielding the. Pa- but you know, it's yeah. the only about. Get- I think this this thing about getting it. Who yeah. gets the fantasy, and at what point do they get it? The children get it immediately. Bert's already got it. But actually, Jaws is very interesting because he gets the fantasy without having to see any of it. Yes, I think people are going to tell me now that there's a moment where he does that experience some sort of miracle. But I think George is always from the outside, right? He never sees. He never sees Poppins. Uh, Go down, uh, go up the chimney. He hit, he yeah. sees reactions to it. He doesn't jump into the chalk painting, but he hears about it and, and dismisses it. Yeah. yeah, he doesn't actually get that profound moment that would change one's attitude yeah, towards fantasy. True. And yet he's the one that's most profoundly changed. So he never glimpses. You're right. He's never witness to the kinds of activity that the spectator and the children are. It's when he then hears about it and he's told about it he's not that helps him not buy into it mm-hmm. but no you're right yeah i've never thought that he's he he just he just repeats a word yeah and suddenly this unlocks this you know giddy well giddy child in him suddenly uh-huh. he's he's kind of dressed slightly differently his collars are skew and he's you know Such hat is ripped there's there's it, his change it plays out in the in and when, a, he, when he gives it to the bank executives and he's you know and he's like you know he, I can't remember his exact speech but he, he takes the tuppence and he goes he finds the tuppence sort of in his in his pocket and he sort of like f- gestures it at them and sort of says there's more worth or, as I say I really can't remember the exact speech but there's more worth in these two pennies than anything you've got behind in your vaults mm. uh, it's such bile and conviction and you know uh, there's other ways of reading this movie that I've, I've read sort of you know it's 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 arguably anti-capitalist yeah uh, which is bizarre given that it's a Disney movie um, it's arguably um, anti-imperialist subtly and it's Rejection of the door of the city of London as this, you know, on the street on St Paul's, a cathedral built with the wealth of of money. If you look close enough, there's destitute poverty and and yeah. you know, like it's 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 searing in that critique. If you choose to see it there, um, I find that scene really quite profound. You yeah. know, um, but what I mean, what's we've talked about the role of Mary Poppins as a figure and her ability to conjure fantasy and fantasies and the, the change in rules is anchored to her. Yeah. Obviously she's not there in this in that sequence no. that you're describing. And yet a character starts to float up into the air. And so so, so how do we register yeah. that? So suddenly Mr uh, Mr. Dawes, once he starts laughing, he begins to float into the air. So what's go- what's going on there? Because Mary Poppins yeah. is nowhere near her, uh, nowhere near him. Um, and so it's that it's the I don't know that fantasy is something that be, can be understood, received, got, transferred, or an exp- Maybe it's a sort of metaphor, or a sort of it plays yeah. out metaphorically in the way that it's 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 inconsequential, and he's fl- he's flighty now. And, and yeah. I don't know. There's there's just no, you're something right. interesting. That's something. There's something in that, but I don't know what. That is. No, I don't know what that is, and I think at this time in the podcast we're not going to have time to work it out. But I agree, there's not. I hadn't thought about that. Um, does the film's visual uh, palette trip into the world of Mary? Um, yeah. So the the film's world, you become yeah, a, kind of, I, I, a Mary Mary's world. Uh, maybe that's. I don't know. Maybe that's stretching. I don't know. I don't. I, but I, I, certainly, how why that scene hasn't come out as being particularly odd before. Yeah. Um, is that by then you're so wanting this world to change for the better to suit. 
the sort of mythologies of Mary and, and all these sort of catchphrases that we've been hearing throughout the movie, that that, perfect, that, make, that has a sort of internal logic to it that makes sense. And then she leaves. And then she leaves. She yeah. says a quick couple of words with her yeah. parrot, which you were telling me, do you want to just say what you said to me uh, about animation, um, a book about animation you were telling me about where uh, Mary Poppins then had this conversation with the parrot was using an example of animation, even though there's no animation oh, yes. in it? Oh, yes. No, there's a, a, this is a very short um, uh, quote from a, a book by Barry Purvis, and Barry Purvis has written a lot about, actually largely stop motion. Um, and there's a, a sentence from it that says, a short scene from Disney's Mary Poppins sums up perfectly the point of animation, although ironically, this scene is live action. Um, and this is just as, as the, once the family is, is healed and Mary is leaving, she's, you know, it's, it's, she's tearful and she's kind of upset and, and so that she lets our guard down ever so slightly. But I liked this, the way that um, Purvis talks about, yeah, the point of animation, although ironically, the scene is live action. Yeah. Uh, I just, it's, it's just there's something about the way in which we understand animation's relationship to live action and whether her engagement with the world and its objects and her ability to play with mm-hmm. um, s- size and scale and space mm-hmm. and kind of a, 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 a material fluidity that's not playing out in the sort of collapse of the rules of the world. It seems, I don't know, it just seems like a playful treatment um, of the character and her ability to kind of, I don't know, to see the fun in things, to see, to be an animator, to have a kind of relationship to objects that is not necessarily functional, but is object is an umbrella, but it does other things. Um, so I, in, in the purpose's case, I don't know. It's it's is the point of animation that he's making that objects are always primed in this world of fantasy that all objects could have a life of their own. Yeah, and I guess all objects could be animated. Um, yeah, given the right bringing the right things with to the right it. nanny yeah yeah well that means we've got a lot of films to cover chris uh, uh in the new year um yes. so we should probably uh finish this one um and and just say a quick notice that we're just going to take one um podcast installment off now for the christmas period because it is october and we've got to do our christmas shopping now yeah um so we won't you won't get a regular podcast in the next installment in the next two weeks but we will be back uh, beginning of January with a whole a treat of other things that I'll leave you to find out uh, then. So don't worry, we're not abandoning you. We haven't gone back up into the clouds. We um, we just uh, we're just gonna take a week off because frankly I think you guys um, probably deserve a week off from us more than any other reason. Um, but we will be back in the new year and we've got plenty more to talk about and I'm excited to do it. Yes, absolutely. And, and obviously it goes without saying that if any listeners have any um, ideas for podcasts, things we'd like you'd like to hear us discuss, you know where to find us. You yep. can find us um, on the usual social media channels but also the website so get in touch if you've got ideas for for fantasy animation content and i have absolutely no idea what we plugged in the middle of this podcast because i can't remember but um just a quick shout out to anyone who um is enjoying this podcast that isn't in the academic world that feels like they'd love to be part of the conversation but feel like they you know they don't feel like they they can because they don't have enough knowledge uh we this research network exists to bring different types of knowledge together so we are sharing the knowledge we have on this stuff but if people have knowledge of of other worlds that we do not inhabit both magically and otherwise of uh organized we're particularly interested in people who are sort of uh, creative practitioners do you make animations whether on a low scale or or a sort of um you know as part of your job we'd love to hear from you uh do you uh operate some sort of fan community whether that's meeting up for coffee with a bunch of like-minded people or again some more um, organized or, 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 or with more members 
please get in contact. We'd love to. Um, we'd love to get you guys contributing to the site and stuff. Absolutely. So uh, with that plea out of the way, um, you know, feed the birds. Supercalifragilistic. I can't do it now. Uh, Supercalifragilisticexpialidocious.dociusaliexpiasticfragicalirupus. Thank you very much for listening to this year, and we'll see you next year. Happy Christmas. Let's go fly a kite up to the highest height. Let's go fly a kite and send it soaring up through the atmosphere, up where the air is clear. Oh, let's go fly a kite.